Um, so just before I start, I'd like to thank Father Thomas and Father Marius um, and the whole team of the Thomistic Institute in Rome for their invitation and for organizing this workshop so well. I'm, of course, very honored to be here speaking, especially after having benefited much from the Thomistic Institute um, in the past, especially when I was a graduate student in the United States. So imagine that you were a Renaissance astronomer in 1543 reading the De Revolutionibus Orbium Celestium, a new book of astronomy that had just come out by Nicolaus Copernicus. When opening the cover, the first thing that you would encounter would be a preamble regarding the overall arguments of the book. This introduction was not signed, and so you, as the reader, would probably think that it was written by the book's author, Copernicus himself. This preamble claims that this book did not concern the truth about the universe. Instead, the book was only about a new and powerful mathematical model that placed the sun at the center of the universe, while the earth and all the other planets rotated around it. This heliocentric model was significantly different from the geocentric model developed by Ptolemy in the first century AD. But as the preamble said, quote, this model need not be true nor even probable. On the contrary, if it provides a, cal a calculus consistent with the observations, that alone is enough. For you as a Renaissance astronomer, this would not sound strange. In fact, most astronomers since antiquity up to the Renaissance and beyond were not concerned with knowing the fabric of the cosmos as natural philosophers were. Instead, Renaissance astronomers were concerned with describing the apparent motions of the planets and other objects in the sky. And this in itself was a demanding task. Astronomic models relied on precise observations and sophisticated mathematical operations, such as the use of orbits within orbits, known as epicycles. Sometimes these astronomical computations led to absurd results, such as predicting that the moon often moved too close to the earth. Yet, as this preamble to Copernicus's book also reminded you, this was not problematic because the position of the moon's center in the skies was quite accurate. Physicist and historian of science Pierre Duhem neatly described his astronomical approach as saving the phenomenon. This logic may sound bizarre today, but just think of how modern physics deeply relies on general relativity, even though its results are absurd at the quantum level, and vice versa. In short, astronomy, then as now, relied on mathematics to describe certain observable phenomena and not to explain how and why they happen. But now imagine that this Renaissance reader of the De Revolutionibus was not you, but Copernicus himself. In 1543, the year in which the book was published, Copernicus was in bed recovering from a stroke. But we know from a friend's letter that Copernicus still received his printed book in the mail and probably read it. Historians do not know whether Copernicus died of horror after reading the book's preamble, but that is a possibility. Indeed, this preamble to the book was not written by Copernicus but rather by a man who oversaw the final stages of the book's printing named Andreas Osiander. Copernicus dying of horror was possible because 
And like most Renaissance astronomers, Copernicus did present his heliocentric model as a true description of the universe. Indeed, the book's first chapter is a realistic defense of heliocentrism. And we also know that Copernicus's closest disciple, a man named Georg Reticus, was very angry when he read the spurious preamble because he crossed it with the big cross in his copies of the book, which can still found in European libraries. But so far as history goes, the De Revolutionibus circulated with an unsigned preamble and most of its Renaissance readers associated its authorship with Copernicus. More importantly, the book's first chapter dealt with heliocentric cosmology, but the other 95% was deadly technical, to borrow the words of Copernicus's expert, Owen Gingrich. That is, the De Revolutionibus was written to be read by astronomers and good mathematicians, just like Copernicus himself said in the book. And astronomers did use it for its computational powers. Indeed, annotations in the extant copies of Copernicus's first editions confirmed this, because the majority of annotated pages are those with the astronomical models and not the narrative ones. Copernicus's model was even used by the commission that reformed the calendar that we have today, namely the Gregorian calendar. But there is no evidence that any of these astronomers who read and mastered Copernicus's who mastered his work, ever considered that the sun may really be at the center of the universe. Since astronomers were but a small percentage of readers in the Renaissance, and not all of them read Copernicus, historians have called the De Revolutionibus the book nobody read. There is evidence of a Dominican friar called Giovanni Maria Tolosani, who because of his interest in the astronomical reform of the calendar, read Copernicus's book when it came out, Unlike most readers of Copernicus, Tolosani dismissed the mathematical computations and focused only on the first chapters. In a manuscript suggestively titled On the Immovable Supreme Heaven and the Smallest Stable Earth, Tolosani acknowledged that Copernicus was advancing a real heliocentric cosmology and added that it contradicted ideas accepted by everyone over a very long time, namely those of Aristotle, and Ptolemy and many other uh, scholars. He also said that Copernicus was, quote, unfamiliar with sacred scripture since he contradicts some of its principles. Tolosani granted that Copernicus could have used more powerful and incontrovertible demonstrations to make his case, but he did not, in Tolosani's understanding at least. Regardless, Tolosani's work remained in a manuscript format, which can still be read at the Biblioteca Nazionale Centrale in Florence, and it was never published until the 20th century. Therefore, the impact of Copernicanism in philosophy and theology, especially in the Catholic world, was neglig negligible for more than half a century. Why then did the Roman Inquisition condemn Galileo as vehemently suspected of heresy for holding idea ideas that were, quote, explicitly contrary to sacred scripture? The answer lies in the fact that the more powerful demonstrations that Tolosano had asked for did emerge in the following decades. These astronomical observations presented serious challenges for Aristotelian physics. They did not necessarily imply that heliocentrism was true, but they incontrovertibly denied the Ptolemaic model. In the rest of this talk, I will describe how philosophical resistance to Copernicanism, and especially to Galileo, 
transformed the minor theological problem into the Roman Inquisition censorship of Copernicanism. Then I will conclude with the question of whether heliocentrism was forbidden in the early modern Catholic world and what that meant for the history of science more generally. So the philosophical impact of Copernicanism began with astronomical observations made decades after Copernicus in opposite corners of Europe. The first observations were made by Tycho Brahe, a Danish astronomer who one night in 1572 saw a new star that no one had ever, see, no one had ever seen before in the constellation of Cassiopeia. He called it a Nova Stella in Latin. Today we would call it a supernova. With the most precise measurements ever used without a telescope, Tycho determined that this new star had to be way above the moon. He reached a similar conclusion concerning the comets that appeared in the sky a few years later in 1577. The problem with things appearing and fading away in the sky is that it contradicts one of the major tenets of Aristotelian cosmology. Aristotle explained that everything above the moon was perfect and, or incorruptible, and that below the moon, everything was corruptible. A famous resonance between this Aristotelian description and Christian iconography is the image of the Immaculate Virgin Mary above the moon or among the stars. This physical explanation made sense because it matched our common experience. Unlike animals, plants, and rocks which die or are destroyed, celestial objects do not seem to change. Moreover, the sun, the moon, and the stars follow the same path over and over again every year. Before Tycho and way after him, there was no knowledge of supernovas, galaxies, or of stars being born and dying. Astronomical observations reaching as early as ancient Babylon confirmed that everything had been the same for millennia. Thus, Tycho's observations were the first cracks in the Aristotelian skies. Just like in glass, the next cracks would rapidly multiply and ultimately shatter this conception. It all started when, in 1604, a new star appeared again in the sky. This time, a 40-year-old Galileo Galilei came to the scene. But Galileo was no astronomer. Instead, he was just a non-famous professor of mathematics at the University of Padua. Galileo's main expertise was in the discipline of mechanics, which in the early 1600s shared the status of astronomy as mixed mathematics. In Padua, Galileo made an important discovery while studying the free fall of objects, which was one of the main topics of late Renaissance mechanics. Through various measurements, he understood that objects fall at the same time regardless of their weight, and not in a time proportional to their weight, as Aristotle himself had claimed. After this discovery, which he shared with friends but did not publish, Galileo's main intellectual agenda became increasingly centered on using the mathematical sciences to make claims about natural philosophy. The problem for Galileo, however, was that just like in the time of Copernicus, mathematicians should only be concerned with saving the phenomena, and thus had no social authority to speak about natural philosophy. But the supernova from 1604 would speed things up for Galileo. Unlike the free fall, whose implications were understood only by Galileo and his friends, 
the supernova was out in the skies for everyone to see. For this reason, Galileo used it as an opportunity to speak publicly against Aristotelian physics, especially against the incorruptibility of the heavens. He did so in public lectures in Padua and in two books published under a pseudonym, the last one of which was just confirmed to be written by Galileo less than a year ago. In this last book, Galileo also suggested that the moon was not perfect and had mountains, thus making a celestial incorruptible body be just like the corruptible earth. But again, Galileo was only a mathematician and his arguments were quickly refuted by various natural philosophers who explained the supernova within an Aristotelian framework. One of his adversaries, a Florentine philosopher named Ludovico delle Colombe, pointed out sarcastically that mathematicians posed no threats to natural philosophy. But things were about to change. In 1609, a new gadget that allowed one to see at greater distances appeared for sale. It was probably advertised as something that allowed soldiers to see enemies at a distance or pilots to look at distant lands. Galileo acquired this instrument and improved it considerably. However, instead of pointing to land, he looked at the sky and saw things that no one had ever seen before. Galileo saw with his own eyes the mountains that he had previously described on the moon. He also saw many more stars in the sky than people thought there were. He noticed that some nebulas and the Milky Way were clusters of stars. And most importantly, he discovered that Jupiter has moons. Galileo thought that this last discovery strongly supported the Copernican system because moons were rotating around another planet. And since his years in Padua, Galileo had been flirting with the heliocentric model because if it was true, it would be a much more efficacious way to confirm the flaws of the Aristotelian system. Galileo published his observations as fast as he could in a book released in March 1610, entitled Sidereus Nuncius, or Stary Messenger. In a masterly strategic move, Galileo dedicated it to the Grand Duke of Tuscany, Cosimo II de Medici. He named the moons of Jupiter the Medician stars, associating the glory of the Medici family with Jupiter's moons. As a result, the Medici offered Galileo a job as the Grand Duke's chief mathematician and natural philosopher in Florence. This was an extraordinary position because Galileo did not have to do any teaching, only research, which is the dream of many scientists today. And he earned much more money than a university professor. More importantly, Galileo was raised to the status of a natural philosopher and thus could now speak at the same intellectual and social level as natural philosophers. Therefore, Galileo did not waste time. He packed his stuff, moved from Padua to Florence, and became something like a star at court. As the Grand Duke's natural philosopher, he attended intellectual debates held after dinner in Italian villas and often won them. And many of the topics he discussed were not astronomical, but rather on the motion of heavy objects, hydrostatics, and other themes that Galileo mastered and which challenged Aristotelian physics. In turn, Ludovico delle Colombe and other Aristotelians fiercely reacted to Galileo's increasingly popular anti-Aristotelian agenda. Unable to beat him in science, they turned to theology.
But before looking at the Galileo affair, let us look at a few theological objections to Copernicanism. Biblical considerations apart, they will become important later. What problems did the heliocentric model present to early modern theologians, especially in the wake of the Catholic Reformation and the Council of Trent? One common answer is the popular idea that Copernicus attacked an anthropocentric view of the universe by removing man from the center of the world. Popularizers of science repeat this great Copernican cliche as it has been called too many times. In part, that is because the vastness of the universe as shown in modern cosmology seems to resonate with an apparently insignificant Earth. The problem, however, is that this narrative is historically inaccurate. As historian Dennis Danielson has documented, no one in the early modern period, including in the decades after Galileo, thought that Copernicus's mistake was the removal of man from the center of the world. Instead, an apparently similar but diametrically opposite argument was used. Copernicus, so the argument went, attempted to exalt man too much by moving him closer to the heavens. In the early modern Christian view of the universe, what lies at the center is not even the earth, but hell. This view is famously described in the divine comedy and the cultural pieces that it sparks, including the calculation of the heights of the different levels in Dante's Inferno by a young Galileo, who therefore was fully aware of this view. Man's central status in the medieval and early modern universe, rather than exaltation, reveals humanity's poor condition, corruptible and very close to the gates of hell. Copernicus's model, if real, turned this figure upside down. In the words of Giovanni Tolosani, that first theologian to engage with the De Revolutionibus, Copernicus changed, quote, the order of God's creatures in his system by seeking to raise the earth heavier than the other elements. In the dispute with Galileo, that Aristotelian Lodovico delle Colombe wrote that Copernicus was wrong because, quote, the earthly mass is in the lowest place in the world, that is, its center. Finally, Francesco Ingoli, the theologian who wrote one of the most sophisticated anti-Copernican treatises after Galileo, put it most clearly, quote, since hell is in the center of earth and, and hell ought to be the most remote place from heaven, earth is admitted to be in the middle of the universe, which is the most remote place from heaven. And here I'm following the translation by Chris and Christina Grani. So, what also becomes clear from these quotations, however, is that the lines between natural philosophy and theology were not well delineated by these authors. Why did they all agree that heaven and hell were located in a physical location? One of the reasons is that the Bible explicitly speaks of Christ descending into hell after the crucifixion and descending into heaven after the resurrection. But today, no Christian interprets these passages literally. According to Catholic doctrine, heaven and hell are supernatural, eternal realities and therefore have no place in a temporal world. What makes Galileo's time even more peculiar is that medieval scholars before Copernicus also understood his autonomy between philosophy and theology in very modern terms. The Dominican Albert the Great, for instance, was often careful in distinguishing supernatural from natural causes and advised others to do the same. 
Even Copernicus thought this way. He wrote as a faithful son of the church and did not seem to think that heliocentrism presented the challenge to theology. His book's dedication to Pope Paul III and the endorsement of various churchmen confirms it. What happened then that around the year 1600, various prominent theologians, including the Jesuit Robert Bellarmine, held a more confused view of the relationship between philosophy and theology? The answer lies in the specific historical circumstances of Europe at the turn of the 17th century. These were times shaped by religious reform, new philosophical worldviews, and ongoing empirical challenges to ancient knowledge. At the center of religious reform, Protestants and Catholics alike developed a much greater attachment to the Bible. The Bible was seen as a source of infallible knowledge, spiritual nourishment, and sadly, much disagreement. As a result of the humanist revival of ancient philosophies, these times also saw a flourishing of philosophies that were alternative to medieval Aristotelianism. The atomistic worldview of Epicurus and the Neoplatonist symbolic understanding of nature were two of them. Moreover, empirical knowledge coming from the Iberian empires was breaking new frontiers in geography and natural history with implication that reached for the first time a global scale. Therefore, by 1600, many scholars were aware that ancient knowledge had to be thoroughly revised. The way to go about it, however, was the source of much debate. Observations provided a good guide, but why not rely also on the Bible, with whose infallibility everybody agreed, including Galileo? Thus, through a more complicated process than I am allowing here, a renewed interest in the Bible led to the rise of biblical cosmologies. These cosmologies appeared on both sides of the religious and scientific spectrums. Protestants and Catholics alike developed them, as well as geocentric and heliocentric philosophers. Just think of Giordano Bruno, Johannes Kepler, and Tommaso Campanella, who were all heliocentric scholars and all adopted uh, these biblical cosmologies from a heliocentric perspective. So all these aspects, alongside the stricter policing of biblical interpretations after the Council of Trent, played an important role in Galileo's crusade against Aristotelian cosmology. Indeed, from the very start, the philosophical arguments of his foes were often accompanied by references to sacred scripture. For this reason, Galileo, who was also a son of his time, decided to use biblical arguments in his writings as well. But Galileo wanted to use them not to support Copernicanism, but rather the corruptibility of the heavens. That is, his heart was more in fighting against Aristotelian physics than anything else. Galileo decided to insert his biblical arguments in a book with his new observations of spots in the sun, which he used as additional confirmation for heliocentrism. The book is known in English as Letters on Sunspots, but its original Italian title, Historia e dimostrazione intorno alle macchie solari, is more telling. By describing sunspots as stains in the sun, Galileo literally placed stains in the immaculate heavens of Aristotle. Indeed, to make his point clearer, Galileo decided to open this book with a quote from Matthew 11:12, which says, quote, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent have carried it off by force. However, his friends in Rome asked Galileo to remove this passage and all other references to the Bible 
and divine inspiration. They had learned that the Inquisition, which was also in charge of approving the printing of books in Rome, would not approve the book otherwise. Galileo agreed, but left his explicit endorsement of Copernicanism untouched. Therefore, this book was published in 1613 with the permission of Roman censorship. The problem, it seems, was not in Copernicanism, because the book was published advocating for Copernicanism, but interpreting the Bible. Regardless of this particular decision, biblical arguments continue to be played out in the background. In Florence, the Dominican friar Raffaello delle Colombe, brother of that other Lodovico, and other Dominicans launched a serious theological attack against Galileo, even from the pulpit. And I must say, also in light of being at the Angelicum today, that the superior general of the Dominican order stepped up and apologized to Galileo for some of these attacks. Even more interesting, we know of a Dominican friar defending the heliocentric model in a public disputation at the Jesuit Roman College in September 1612. But that's, that's all we know, I think. So in light of these theological attacks, Galileo armed up for the fight and also developed his biblical argumentation in favor of Copernicus. In a letter that Galileo wrote to his student and Benedictine mathematician Benedetto Castelli, he endorsed the Copernican model as fully compatible with scripture. In, in a more famous version of this letter known as the letter to the Grand Duchess, Galileo laid out a strong case for the autonomy between theology and natural philosophy. He famously quoted the Oratorian Cardinal Baronius by claiming that, quote, the Bible teaches us how one goes to heaven and not how heaven goes. And this letter, by the way, should be mandatory reading for anyone interested in science and religion and was quoted in Pope John Paul II's famous encyclical Fides at Ratio. What superficial readers of this letter often miss, however, is that Galileo also takes his turn at explaining the Bible with natural phenomena. He concluded the letter by saying that the miracle reported in the book of Joshua, chapter 10, is better explained with the heliocentric model. In this passage, which geocentric philosophers often quoted in favor of the motion of the sun, Joshua performs the miracle of stopping the sun when it was right in the middle of heaven in order to have more daylight and thus win an important battle. But according to Galileo's letter, stopping the sun in the Ptolemaic system meant that the sun stopped in his annual course, the ecliptic, which did not make the day increase in time. In addition, if the sun was in the middle of the sky, which only happens at noon, why did Joshua want to prolong the day if there were still many hours left? From Galileo's perspective, Ptolemy could not answer these questions, but Copernicus could. In Galileo's model, the rotation of the sun at the center of the universe was the source of the motion of all planets, including the Earth's daily rotation. If the sun stopped its rotation, then all planets would stop turning, including the Earth, and thus extending the day. Moreover, in the heliocentric model, the sun is precisely in the middle of heaven, so the miracle did not need to happen at noon. Therefore, in Galileo's terms, the miracle of Joshua confirmed rather than repudiated the heliocentric model. It did not take long 
for Galileo's letter to Castelli, including his novel interpretation of the Bible, to fall under the radar of the Florentine Dominicans, one of whom dropped it at the Inquisition offices in Rome. Since the polemics with Galileo had reached such a scale, the Inquisition decided to study the case by reading all of Galileo's books. In the end, Rome decided to close the process in a soft and discreet manner. None of Galileo's books were condemned, including the Copernican letters on sunspots. However, in 1616, the Congregation of the Index asked that Copernicus's De Revolutionibus be suspended until corrected, and that the biblical defense of Copernicanism, quote, of the Carmelite father, Paolo Antonio Foscarini, be altogether prohibited. As to Galileo, the head of the Inquisition, Cardinal Bellarmine, told him to refrain from defending heliocentrism as a scientific fact. Indeed, Bellarmine had clear thoughts about heliocentrism. In a semi-public letter, he wrote that, quote, if there were a true demonstration that the sun is at the center of the world, then one would have to proceed with great care in explaining the scriptures that appear contrary. But I will not believe that there is such a demonstration until it is shown to me. In the end, Galileo's books were not considered problematic, but this apparently minor decision would hold major consequences for Galileo a few years later. In 1633, so almost 15, 15 years later, Galileo was finally condemned as vehemently suspected of heresy because of the publication of his Copernican dialogue concerning the two chief world systems. The story of why Galileo wrote it and of how the Inquisition reacted is a highly complex story involving almost everything but science. But the legal basis for the condemnation was the 1616 warning to Galileo not to teach Copernicanism. Because of his disobedience to the 1616 decision, Galileo was placed under house arrest in his Florentine villa in Arcetri, where, by the way, he wrote the dialogue or the discourse on the two new sciences, which is his real contribution to physics, which is still taught in classic physics. But what about Copernicanism? Was it a forbidden idea or not? And if yes, what does this mean for its circulation? So after the 1616 decree asking to correct Copernicus's work, the Congregation of the Index charged the theologian Francesco Ingoli with deciding what corrections should be done. His report asked to delete Copernicus's claims for the reality of heliocentrism and to erase any reference to sacred scripture from the book. Ingoli's report was then sent to a group of scientific experts, which in this case were Jesuit astronomers in Rome. And this, by the way, was a standard practice used by the Congregation of the Index to make sure that corrections did not lead to scientific absurdity. So they would also often imply physicians, for instance, if the censored book would be um, a book on medicine. So once the Jesuit astronomers approved the suggested corrections, the Congregation of the Index issued another decree telling the Catholic world what corrections should be done to the book. Now, imagine that you were a 17th century reader of Copernicus outside of Italy. You would probably find a copy of the De Revolutionibus in the astronomy section of the religious or royal library closer to you. But strikingly, that copy would most likely not be censored, including if you were looking for it in the Catholic monarchies of Spain and Portugal. 
Indeed, according to the largest survey ever done of the extant copies of Copernicus's De Revolutionibus, of about 400 copies now in Europe, only 33 are censored, or about 1 in 12. More importantly, almost all of these censored copies of Copernicus are in Italy. Thus, if you were an Italian reader of Copernicus, you would also find the De Revolutionibus easily available in the astronomy section of your favorite library, but this time with visible corrections. However, most corrections were done in ways that allowed the reader to easily read the censored information, such as these corrections done in Galileo's copy by his own hand. This week, by the way, I tried to see this copy in person in Florence, but I was told by the archivist that the copy is actually in Washington, D.C., in an exhibit going on there. But it's online. As you can see, censorship of Copernicus in early modern Italy did not so much erase his statements as it highlighted them. Why? The goal was really not to forbid certain passages, but rather to send a message about why they were prohibited. I mean, you can see some of them, like the first one is really on the table of contents, and he's basically saying that, no, the sun is not, a, is, is not like the sun, the moon, and the, and the earth are not three stars. Right, that's what it says, whereas Copernicus was saying these are three stars rotating around um, in, in, the, in the universe. Nonetheless, a case could still be made that Rome's attack on Copernicus and Galileo made Copernicanism a forbidden idea. Indeed, although the Inquisition did not forbid Galileo from writing more books in 1633, no one in Italy dared to print another of his books for a while. In fact, his book, The Two New Sciences, was published in Protestant Leiden. But other sources show a more interesting story. For instance, two French priests, Marin Mersenne and Pierre Gassendi, published books in the 1640s that did not explicitly endorse Copernicanism, but definitely showed its scientific strengths. Strikingly, a Latin translation of Galileo's dialogue alongside Foscarini's Biblical Defense of Copernicanism and Kepler's Astronomia Nova was printed in Lyon, France in 1641 with a reprint of its corresponding imprimatur, so its ecclesiastical permissions. And in 1656, the first edition of Galileo's complete works was published in Bologna. This edition did not include the dialogue on the two chief world systems, but it included Galileo's letter on sunspots, which was his uh, first defense of Copernicanism. Also relevant, is a set of Portuguese manuscript notes from a class of astronomy in Lisbon in 1617. The professor was Giovanni Paolo Lembo, an Italian Jesuit who had been involved in the Collegio Romano's response to the first astronomical observations of Galileo. These notes show that Lembo was fully aware of the 1616 condemnation against Copernicanism, but they also show that Lembo still taught the heliocentric model in a public class at a Jesuit school. Lembo did not advocate, advocate for Copernicus, of course, but he taught it freely to his students. Lembo was only one of the first in a long list of Jesuits who wrote about heliocentrism in the 17th century without, however, fully endorsing it. Finally, although some popularizations of Newtonian physics were forbidden by the index a couple decades later, such as the ones, for instance, written by Voltaire, Newton's works themselves were never forbidden. And Newton was, of course, one of the main catalysts of Copernicanism in the history of science. 
Interestingly, one of the earliest commentaries on Newton's Principia, although printed in Protestant Geneva, was made by two minim monks working in Rome under the patronage of Pope Benedict XIV. And this case has also allowed historians to claim that the dissemination of Newtonianism in Italy was largely a Catholic effort. In conclusion, if you are a reader of popular accounts of science and religion, you probably know that the church's censorship of science, and especially of Copernicanism, appears in two extremes. Namely, the claim that the church forbade the circulation of scientific ideas, or on the other hand, that such prohibitions are just myths. The historical reality, however, is much more complex. As we saw, Copernicanism did not raise serious theological or philosophical problems until Galileo came into the scene. And the Galileo affair itself was highly influenced by its historical circumstances, such as the rise of biblical cosmologies and biblical authority after Trent. Yes, in the Galileo affair, Roman authorities intervened, censored Copernicanism, and associated it with the forbidden idea. But censoring Copernicus meant something different from erasing it from the map. Astronomers and scholars across Europe still had full access to it, even if through a censored copy. Indeed, rather than asking about the success or failure of censorship, a new generation of historians of science has instead asked what can Catholic censorial practices in themselves teach us about early modern science. As it turns out, there is still much to discover. Recently, a new book argued that the Catholic Church's mechanisms to censor and correct certain ideas had a key role in shaping the European discourse on the usefulness of science, more often associated with Francis Bacon and Protestant England. And the claim is that the Church selectively passed certain ideas because they were seen as useful knowledge. Other works have argued that the Catholic Church's belief and at the same time rejection of magic and astrology was central to removing such practices from the scientific environment. In short, modern history of science challenges the description of the past as a battle between heroes and villains. But precisely because of that, it is much more interesting than we tend to think. Thank you very much.